Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, dedicated to sharing the life stories of NFL legends. Today's guest, Steelers Hall of Fame center, Dermonte Dawson. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Michael. Please remember that the Game Before the Money is a 501c3 nonprofit. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a donation at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Also, please consider leaving a nice review about the podcast on your favorite podcast app and let your friends know about the Game Before the Money podcast. Today's guest is Germani Dawson, the Hall of Fame center for the Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, it's fairly uncommon in sports for a team to transition from one Hall of Famer to another at any given position. The New York Yankees had Joe DiMaggio retire and a kid named Mickey Mantle took over in center field. That's one example. In football, the 49ers transitioned from Joe Montana to Steve Young at quarterback. It's a rare occurrence, but the Pittsburgh Steelers went from Hall of Fame center Mike Webster to my guest today, Hall of Fame center Dermani Dawson. And it's pretty incredible to think about. Pittsburgh drafted Mike Webster in 1974. And after Webster left the Steelers following the 1988 season, Dermani Dawson took over at center and played until the year 2000. Thousand, Okay, that's a Hall of Fame center lining up for the Steelers from 1974 into the next century. That is incredible. A lot of people don't know that Dermani Dawson actually started out as a guard for the Steelers. He'll tell you how he got the starting job at center in this program. Dawson grew up in Kentucky. He also attended the University of Kentucky. Sounds like it might have been an obvious choice for him, but there's an interesting story behind that. Dawson was drafted by the Steelers in 1988. He's going to discuss playing for the great Chuck Knoll. He's going to share what it was like when Hall of Fame Running back Jerome Bettis came over from the Rams and what it was like to block for him. And he's also going to talk about playing for another Hall of Fame coach, Bill Cower. One thing that's important to know about Germani Dawson's tremendous career is that he pulled from the center position. This was a skill that was unique to him. He would snap the ball and then pull, meaning run to his left or to his right to block. That took a special amount of ability, versatility, and strength to be able to do that. He's going to give you the story behind that technique and how it got started in this interview. Here is the Game Before the Money interview with Pittsburgh Steelers legend, Dermonte Dawson. 
You grew up in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. Were you, were you big? I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were you a big Wildcats fan then, growing up? Oh yeah. Well, you know, everybody's a Wildcat fan when you grew up in Lexington. You know, for basketball and uh, football. Yeah. Were Were you a basketball player when you were young too? Were Were you looking? No. At- no. Hey, hey. You know, I. I uh, hey, Jackson. I was. Uh, I played baseball when I was coming up, and um, I didn't start football until later. I played one year, like uh, Pop Warner football, but um, I really didn't get into football until high school. But it was more track and field and baseball for me. Oh, and uh, what what kind of lifted your football career off then in high school? Well, in high school, I had two of my buddies, uh, Mark Logan and Cornell Burbage, who also were my teammates on the track team. And uh, it all started, you know, Steve Parker, who was uh, a new coach at our high school uh, my uh, sophomore year, I think it was. One day I was coming out of uh, chemistry class and he, uh, I ran into him and he said, son, where have you been all my life? And, uh, he put his arms on, you know, hit me right, right on the shoulders and said, where have you been all my life? And then my teammates on the track team, Mark Logan and Cornell Burbage convinced me to go out for football my junior year. After that, I went out and, uh, started, uh, you know, playing football my junior year in high school. Well, that's amazing. Cause most people, they start you know, a lot younger with the JV and everything, and you went right to varsity as a junior. and Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just, uh, just the way it kind of worked out. Was Kentucky just an obvious choice for you? Did you have other college options? What what was that process? Yeah, I did have uh, other college uh, options. You know, I had scholarship offers to uh, Tennessee, Michigan State, UCLA. But at that time, you know, my uh, girlfriend and I were dating, and I was a year ahead of her. So she wanted to go to Ohio State, and I wanted to go to Michigan State or UCLA. So we made a pact that I would go to UK, and, uh, you know, she would come to UK after she graduated as well. And, uh, you know, we ended up getting married, and we're married for 23 and a half years before we got divorced. And, and two beautiful kids, uh, you know, from our marriage, and uh, a son who is now 31, and my daughter who is 29. So that was the reason why I went to UK. I was in love. Wow, that that is an amazing story. And and you know what? It's very similar to what Bart Starr told me, um, because Bear Bryant had wanted him to come to Kentucky, and uh, oh, he stayed in Alabama because his girlfriend was going to Auburn, and they ended up being married. Well, hey Jackson, you see it all the time. You know, uh, you know, a man follows a woman, or a woman follows a man. Uh, you know, love has it. It does strange things to you. Yeah, yeah, it definitely. That's a that's a great way to make a decision too. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And you mentioned about getting stronger in college and everything. I I read something in one of the Steeler press guides that you had won an SEC weightlifting contest. Can, can yeah, what we ended up doing, yeah, this was, you know, um, I was like a all-SEC, uh, you know, they had like this weightlifting team or strong team, uh, and it was it was based on combined weights. Um, we didn't have a competition, you know, throughout the SEC. What the, what we did, we had uh, our uh, strength coach at UK, Pat Etcheberry. So every lift, I think they went on bench, squat, and power cleans. And so I ended up, uh, you know, doing the most after they report all the different weights. Um, 
you know, I think I had the most uh, weights out of anybody in the SEC as far as total lifts, total pounds. And uh, so I was named to, you know, first team all, all strength team for SEC. And that was my senior year and junior year, I think it was. Wow, that's, that's impressive. It was, so it was kind of a blind competition. You guys didn't get in a room and try to outlift each other. No, no. Only time that we would lift amongst ourselves and have a little competition was uh, like uh, winter workouts where, you know, guys are in there working out and you're trying to max out. So, of course, you know, you want to be the top dog when it comes to most of the lifts. Um, So I was up at the top uh, pretty much uh, every year. And your your college coach was uh, Jerry Claiborne. Jerry Claiborne came in and, and right before he came in 1982. And I was the class of 1983, and uh, Jerry Claiborne came from University of Maryland. But, you know, Jerry Claiborne, man, he was a great coach, man. He used to always, always have his little saying, you know, be the best, be the best. And that's one of the mottos that I really took to heart when you talk about, you know, something you, you remember. Coach Claiborne used to always say, you know, be the best. He said, try to be the best at everything you try to accomplish or try to do. And I took that to heart, and that's what I kind of took that into my pro career when I was drafted as a rookie in 88 to Pittsburgh and always trying to continue to be the best and always improve on my technique, improve on my strength, you know, just uh, make sure that I uh, I knew what I was doing, you know, as far as assignment-wise and writing stuff down. And that made a lasting impression on me as a young man, you know, just listening to Coach uh, Jerry Claiborne. You came into the Steelers as a second-round pick in, in 88, and they, they started – playing you at guard yeah well hey michael i was originally a pulling guard at university of kentucky as well and then you know how i became centers because i used to go to scout team at uk and go against the number one offense Uh, and so i played a little center throughout college and then they switched me to defensive line i think my junior year and one of you played defensive tackle and that's, this was in spring ball when they made that switch. And then they switched me back to guard at the end of spring practice. But, you know, I was a pulling guard, but I used to also used to play center for the scout team. And then also in the bowl game, uh, we played against uh, Wisconsin in the Hall of Fame bowl game down in Mobile, Alabama. And this was in 87, I think it was. And uh, they switched me to center because our center went down and I was starting to guard at that time. So I did have some experience, you know, playing center uh, just for the scout team. Yeah, and and in a bowl game, too. Yeah. And then, you know, when when I came to Pittsburgh in 88, you know, they drafted me originally as a guard. And then, you know, of course, you had Mike Webster, who was the center, and I played bes- beside Mike. But I didn't start until my fourth game of my rookie year. I finished out the year after I got hurt, and I was on IR because I got my knee hurt uh, my, my rookie year, and then I only started eight games my rookie year at guard. But after my rookie season, then uh, Chuck Knoll had called me into his office and said, uh, you know, we want to switch you to center because Mike was leaving to go to Kansas City. And Chuck Knoll just took me in the office and said, hey, I'm just going to switch you to center and and uh, let you and Chuck Lanza kind of fight it out for the uh, position. And um, I ended up winning the, uh, the job. Was your experience in college and maybe even playing defensive tackle? How, how much did that help you in, in the center position, kind of knowing what someone else was going um, to do? Well, not at all, because, I mean, it's totally different. I, I only played for spring ball, you know, just uh, 
uh, a few weeks of spring ball, you know, spring practice and stuff, you know, being defense tackle. But other than that, uh, I was always a guard. And then making that transition to center, that's totally different because, you know, you got to, you know, you're you're pretty much the quarterback of the O-line. And, uh, you know, you got to have your ears open and your eyes open as well, you know, because you got to make adjustments to the offense, you know, if uh, audible is called or, you know, change the pass protection based on what you see and what play is called. As far as making that transition, and, uh, you know, being defense tackle didn't have anything to do with making that transition to center. That's a totally different job. But but you did mention something that I, 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 I'm really glad you brought up, saying that the center is kind of the quarterback of the offensive line. I've, I've heard other people say that as well. Can you kind of kind of walk us through what you're looking for when you line up at, at the center and, and, you know, for a typical play? Yeah, yeah. You know, just say, say for instance, a, a pass play. You know, usually our, our protection, our responsibility as an O-line is, you know, the four big guys, defensive tackle, you know, ends, and then also the Mike linebacker kind of dictates because he's right in the middle and he's, and he's a clear and present danger right in the middle if you were to blitz. So when you come up to the line of scrimmage, you know, we have base calls where you have like slide protections where you slide one way and the back is blocking the opposite, opposite direction. Or you have like a, a quick pass where we're responsible for the four big guys on the line of scrimmage and the middle linebackers. So we have to make various calls when we go up there based on the alignment of the middle backer, which is a Mike linebacker, we call them. And, uh, and then also the configuration of the defensive line, whether they're in an over or an under defense and an over defense being, being stacked towards the tight end, under defense is being on the open side of the offense where the tight ends on the opposite side. So it depends on what kind of pass play is called. And so our responsibilities are based on, you know, whether it's a quick pass or, or slide protection. So we have to make all those adjustments. And sometimes we come up to the line of scrimmage and then they've got a different defense where we're kind of outmanned as far as protection wise. So the quarterback has to call an audible. And so we have to know what that audible means. And there's different rules based on whatever pass it is. If it's a quick pass or a play action pass, we have different rules for different passes. And so you just have to be astute on making sure that you know exactly what your responsibility is because it changes the back's responsibility, who he will block, and also the offensive line. So, And then a quarterback's got to know that if you got a guy coming off the corner, then he has to be aware that, which is going to, we call it like hot. So, because he has no protection, he's got to identify that guy himself and get rid of the ball. So, that's kind of like what you look for when you come up to the line of scrimmage as a center. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of people, you know, it's it's really well known that the quarterback is up there reading the defense, but the center has defensive reading responsibilities as well, then it sounds like. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, um, you know, we practice a lot of that stuff, too. We come up with different calls just to alert people, and sometimes you have to echo that to the back. Sometimes you have to make sure that you uh, convey it up and down the line to the tackle, and the tight end's got to hear it as well. So uh, and we just got to identify who our protection is or who we're responsible for. You know, I know a lot of people always talk about, uh, you know, you have to be uh, dumb jocks, but... When you're playing football, you can't be dumb. You got to know and be able to identify and make a split decision very quickly when you get up to the line of scrimmage. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, I love that, that you know, you help them break that stereotype there. And you mentioned you mentioned the running back a few times. I wanted to ask you, when, when did you find out, how did you find out uh, that Jerome Bettis was, was traded to the Steelers? Oh, uh, you know, well, actually, uh, Kent Stevenson, our O-line coach. Uh, and then also, when that happened, it was during the offseason, and, uh, you know, I think we had been in, we had come in, you know, lifting weights in the offseason uh, uh, weightlifting program, and uh, we just happened to be in the meeting room, and um, Ken Stevenson, who was my O-line coach, told me that uh, Jerome, that they had just, uh, you know, acquired uh, Jerome. So, of course, you know, we were happy about that. And what what was it like, you know, blocking for him? And, and what does a, a Hall of Fame back like him, what is he able to do that other running backs, like an average to good NFL running back, would do? I think it's just, you know, how he ran the ball. Because Jerome, being a bigger back, you know, he was quick and very agile for his size. And he had those big, big legs, man. So, he, you know, Jerome, if you give him a little momentum, man, he, you got to get out of his way because he'll run right into the back of you and make a hole and uh, push you forward as well. So when you're uh, blocking for Jerome, you got to make sure that you get out of the way because if not, he's going to hit you in the side or hit you in the back and, and, and make a, a, a gap uh, to get through. And, uh, you know, Jerome, he's just a great guy, man, just a heck of a back and, you know, for his size, man, he's so agile and, and light on his feet. And it was a pleasure blocking for him as well. Yeah, I bet. It, it just must have been been awesome, you know, having clearing the way for him. It was. It was. And I always tell people, I said, hey, you better get out of his way because if not, because when he hits you sometimes, <laughs> it's, uh, it's painful at times sometimes when he would run into you. Yeah, yeah, you know, he would hurt linebackers, so you yeah. don't want him to hurt you, for sure. No, because Jerome was about, what, 230, I think, 240, you know, as a running back, and uh, that's a big back. And, uh, you know, Jerome, is just, he always got up with that little bounce and that little step, you know, after you made a nice little run, and, uh, you know, he would get you all motivated, and, and you just wanted you just wanted to do well for uh, Jerome, you know, and that's that's that goes for everybody, though. You still want to do well, but... Jerome just has so much enthusiasm as a running back. Now, when I've, I've spoken to some other people about the 70s Steelers, I've heard that a lot of their scheme on the offensive line was, was trap blocking. Was it still like that when you got in there, or what, what was the scheme like? Um, yeah, it was it was a trap blocking scheme. Tom Moore was the offensive coordinator at that time, and uh, they did have a trap and offense uh, you know, back in the 70s because they had small linemen and quick linemen. So... But uh, that was just the style of offense that Tom Moore ran, uh, you know, with the trap plays, counter traps, you know, draw plays. And a lot of teams uh, don't do the trapping offense uh, anymore. Uh, you know, it's more off-tackle running, you know, dive plays and, and uh, toss sweeps. Uh, and now it's more of a passing offense now because it's more of, a, you know, high-scoring games now, you know, the, the way the offenses are structured. And did that change happen while you were in the league? You played from, you know, the late 80s to 2000. Uh, no, it really, for us, you know, we had an identity as a running team, you know, and uh, we're more of a, a running, you know, downhill running team. I always call it smash mouth football. And, uh, you know, we identified with the run game because we were going to run the ball at all costs. And, uh, 
that's what most offensive linemen like to do. You know, you want to run and establish uh, dominance over a defense. You know, sometimes you get beat, but, you know, you still got to try to establish that uh, dominance as a run team because it wears defenses down. You know, and then also it keeps the defense off the field so the defense can be effective, uh, you know, keeping their offense uh, off the field. So it's a give and take uh, kind of uh, offense, and it's just a mindset, man. It's that worker's mentality kind of uh, football, you know, smash mouth football. And, you know, you always hear about controlling the line of scrimmage. Now, is that something, is that like game momentum too, where there's momentum throughout the game? Or does it change every play, or, or, or is it just something that, that kind of happens over the course of the game? It kind of happens, you know, just uh, from the start of the game because you come, come with your game plan and uh, the coordinator, you know, he has about 15 to 20 plays that we're going to run that we run very well. And uh, so you kind of build that momentum, uh, you know, trying to fill out the defense and making adjustments to whatever schemes they're doing. And as an offensive line, you know, you want to assert your dominance over your opponent. And um, it becomes a mentality, you know, physical mentality. You know, you're going to force your wheel on somebody else who's trying to do the same to you. But hopefully we prevail. And um, so it's a momentum thing, you know, as you have some success in a running game and, you know, you just continue to try to grind that ball out and eat up that clock. And one thing I noticed about you playing center that's different than, than most anybody I've seen is a lot of times you were almost pulling like a guard and blocking downfield. Did... Did they develop that with you, or um, was that something that developed over your career, or, or how did that, that come into play? Yeah, hey, Jackson, that, that, ha- that started in 1992 when Bill Cowher came uh, as head coach his first year. And, uh, you know, every, and, and this kind of happened in training camp. You know, we would always take the first Monday of the week and work and try to incorporate our first game, game planning, so that first Monday or first day of practice uh, in training camp, we'd, we'd uh, focus on our first uh, game of the season. So we were playing, I think it was going to, I think it was a Philly or something. We were, we were going to play uh, our first game of the season. And so they were going to this new, new defense, uh, like a 4-4 defense where they had four linebackers, four defensive linemen. And so they're playing gaps. So it, it was wreaking havoc with the offensive line being able to make it up to the second level to block the linebackers. It was driving teams uh, crazy. So I was in camp one day, and I told uh, Ron Earhart, who was the offense coordinator at that time, I said, Ron, you know, I can make a call, and I can have the guard either block my assignment, depending on how wide he is, and then I can pull as a center and go around and take his responsibility. And so we started to do that and kind of uh, fool with it in practice to see how it would go. And uh, after we ran it a few times and, and you know, and I, and I told Ron, too, that I would make calls, either a live call or a false call, just to let those guys know and kind of communicate it because we all have to be on the same page because you don't want to let a guy, you know, free in the backfield to kill the, the running back. So we started doing that in 92 and we just kept fooling with it and fooling with it in training camp. And, and we started incorporating it in more and more of the offense. And that became our signature thing, uh, you know, uh, me pulling from the center position. Yeah, that, that was a signature part of your career, and that's really interesting. So it, it kind of started as, as an adjustment for one game, it sounds like, and, and then you guys just yeah. hung with it. 
And then we stuck with it because we were so effective and, you know, people couldn't stop us running the ball because they couldn't, they couldn't shade a guy and take up two linemen and then allow the linebacker to kind of do his own thing freestyle where he's not, he's unblocked. And, uh, you know, so we, we started incorporating in our offense, man. And I tell you what, you know, and then people tried to mimic the, the same thing as the blocking schemes that we were running. And it all started with you in practice. But it, it takes the personnel, too, to be able to do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Thank you guys. Um, you know, of course, going to the Super Bowl, you know, that year, was, was that what, – what do you think the elements were that were different that year than other years when you guys made the playoffs? And Oh, you're talking about as far as, uh, you know, having a successful season or just uh... – Just getting over the humping and, and winning the, the conference championship. You know, we knew we were good because we had a young offensive line. We had some mobile guys. We had great backs and receivers. But, you know, when we when we played in Super Bowl 30 against Dallas, you know, we just we just got behind too quickly, you know, with the two interceptions in the first quarter. Um, and then they and then, of course, you know, Dallas ended up scoring two um, uh, early touchdowns early in the game. So that kind of throws you out of your game plan a little bit. So we had to make adjustments. uh to our offense to try to at least catch up and score a few more points in order to, you know, not be blown out of the game too early. So we didn't have a chance to catch up, but you know, unfortunately we fell short. The experience for you, I mean, what, you know, you're standing in the tunnel before the game. I mean, what, what is that like? I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, everybody dreams about and, and you're oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, game for you for us anyway you know because that's what you lift all those weights and run all those sprints and stadium steps and uh, everything else you know to make it to a super bowl and that's your goal each and every year as a player and and a team and uh you know to be there it's kind of surreal you know because you you always see it on television and then once you're finally there then you see the workings of you know the media day where you got a stadium full of media from all over the country and you're sitting in a chair and doing interviews with, you know, all these people. And then next thing you know, it's the show. It's the biggest, it's the biggest game uh, going. And you're right in there. So, I mean, it was kind of surreal, to tell you the truth. But a great experience. And from a fan's perspective, that particular game, Steelers, Cowboys, Super Bowl, you know, that was a, that was a big Super Bowl rivalry in the 70s. Um, yeah. Did, did the guys from the 70s, were were they kind of uh, kind of around you guys? Were they? No, not not that much. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, that I can remember anyway. But uh, you know, some of the guys from the seventies still live in Pittsburgh, so they were around us every once in a while. But I'm not for sure that specific time. You know, were they around? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I just can't. I can't remember. Yeah, that's interesting because because you know a lot of times guys are like, well, whatever happened in the past, it's it's not. You know, it's not our team, you know. And so it was yeah. it was like that. It was two different franchises, even though to the fans, it's like, you know, Cowboys, Steelers. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. But, you know, all the guys, man, you know, Mel Blunt and all those guys, and they still live in Pittsburgh, and uh, they're at the games quite often. Yeah, which I guess would be inspiring, I would think, as a... Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I was, I was thrilled to death as a, a rookie, you know, meeting Mean Joe Green and and uh, and him being a defensive line coach at that time, and 
and seeing Mike Webster and playing beside Mike Webster and just being in the same room with him, uh, you know, it is it is uh, kind of strange, but uh, surreal at the same time. Speaking of being in the same room with those guys, then you, you make the Hall of Fame. You know, now now you're in in that club. Um, I know, I know. Yeah, it still it still doesn't seem real. Um, you know that every year that I go back to to you know welcome in the new class, um, and I'm sitting there talking to. You know, Joe Green, Dan Marino, all these guys, Joe Montana, you know, and, and they know me by name. And, and now and I've been part of that uh, great fraternity for 10 years. And, um, you know, and I see these guys almost every year, you know, at, at, at multiple events. And it's just kind of strange just to be able to, uh, you know, sit and talk to those guys like we're talking now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was on the bus and I was just sitting with uh, Tony Dorsett, and we were just talking about uh, you know just life and kids, and uh, you know just talking about the football, uh, and just talking about just daily events. And it's it's the strangest thing in the world to be talking to a legend like uh, Tony Dorsett and sitting with him on the bus and just having a good old time. Yeah, wow, and he's got a lot of Pittsburgh roots too. Yeah, University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, alumni. Yeah, yeah. So we talk about that and everything else, just just life in general. And it's just strange, you know, just to know that I have that relationship with all these Hall of Famers, uh, you know. And it's just it's, it's the strangest thing. It's a good thing. Yeah, and um, you know, you had that that tremendous career, and um, you certainly redefined. The position with with the pulling on those plays, and you had a lot of success with the Steelers. You made a lot of Pro Bowls. Um, yeah, yeah, very blessed. What what kind of what kind of goes through your mind when you look back and and reflect on it all? You know, it's just a, a multitude of just uh, working hard, and um, you know, you still don't believe that you accomplished all the things that you accomplished and all the accolades that you received. You just don't think about it because, I mean, really, you just take it one year at a time and one day at a time, uh, and that's all you can do. And then the culmination of that, then you get, uh, you know, rewarded, um, you know, with the Pro Bowls and potential Super Bowl. And then next thing you know, you get inducted to the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame. And um, I never would have thought that I'd had so much success as a player, um, you know, going into the pros as I did, you know, playing with the Steelers for 13 seasons. I never thought I'd have that success, but I don't know. It's it's kind of crazy how things kind of work out, you know? And you just never know what uh, your future has to hold. Yeah. You well, never know what the future has for you. That is that is inspiring. Um, well, Dermani, thanks, um, thanks so much. Is there anything else that you think is important? Jackson, the only thing I always tell kids, you know, when I talk to them, I said, you know, no matter what you do, always strive to be the best that you can be. Because, I mean, that's one thing that, uh, you know, my coach, Jerry Claven in, in college, always emphasized, you know, be the best you can be at everything you try and uh, never give up. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Remember that The Game Before the Money is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to preserving the life stories of former NFL players. 
please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcriptions of some episodes of the Game Before the Money podcast are also available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics, spelled S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services.